I'm Tom Morello, and you're listening to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, Hannah Feldman. David Feldman is still out, uh, but uh, we're so glad to have Hannah here. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Steve. And we also have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Hey, before we kick off the show, we've got a great one here with Andrew Coburn. Ralph, there were a couple of items in the news that you wanted to elaborate on. What, what do you got for us? The first one was a spectacular 30 page insert with no advertising in Tuesday, April 26, New York Times. It's called Olmsted's Enduring Gift. It's a tribute to Frederick Law Olmsted on his 200th anniversary. He was born 200 years ago, and he was the leader in creating national parks and urban parks like Central Park. It's such a beautifully done job with no advertisements, photography, with quotes from Frederick Law Olmsted and the contributions he made to tranquility, communion with nature, a peaceful respite in busy lives. And I thought that people should know about this and try to get copies of it from the New York Times. It's called Olmsted's Enduring Gift, the man behind many of the nation's beloved parks. His creations are more essential to modern American life than ever. The second is a very sobering story. The first person has immolated himself, set himself on fire right in front of the United States Supreme Court, protesting government inaction on climate violence. He's a 50-year-old Buddhist from California, and he died on the way to the hospital. His colleague said it was not a suicide. It was an expression of compassion and concern over global inaction against climate catastrophe. We may be seeing more of this. This is what we saw, those of us who are old enough to remember the Vietnam War, Buddhist monks setting themselves on fire and immolating themselves in the, in the same way, which is quite, quite the sacrifice and quite dramatic, but that this is an existential threat. Yeah. We have another fascinating show per usual. And for obvious reasons, we've had to spend the past couple of months talking a lot about war. We've tried to put in historical perspective what's going on in Ukraine. And given our own history of waging war, most recently in Afghanistan and Iraq, we've certainly highlighted the hypocrisy of the United States government expressing outrage at Russia's preemptive attack in Ukraine and the inevitable atrocities and crimes that lie in its wake. So today, we are once again going to take a hard look in the mirror and focus our attention on our own militaristic culture. The individual people who enlist in the military may do it for any number of reasons. Maybe it's a family tradition. Maybe it's a way to pay for college. Maybe they were drafted. Maybe they believe that they'll be defending their country. But what drives the policymakers? Many wars of recent history from Vietnam through Afghanistan have in the cold light of history been admitted as mistakes, but all well-intentioned mistakes. In his new book, Spoils of War, journalist Andrew Coburn comes to the conclusion that it's no mistake. The decision makers who send Americans off to kill and die are largely driven by self-interest and yes, profit. If we have time, Ralph will answer some more of your listener questions. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, 
our great grinding American war machine couldn't possibly be driven by petty squabbles among bureaucrats, egos of politicians, and greed, could it? Hannah? Andrew Coburn is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and has been reporting and commenting about the politics of war and national security for over 40 years. He's the author of several books, including Rumsfeld, An American Disaster, and The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, as well as the Substack newsletter, Spoils of War. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Andrew Coburn. Great to be with you. Welcome, Andrew. You describe the military-industrial complex as self-perpetuating, always-expanding organism. I might call it a sub-government because it gets its way. It's almost never lost. Constant new weapons, constant escalating contract costs, constant putting their own people in the Pentagon and the Washington military-industrial complex merry-go-round. John Kenneth Galbraith, the famous progressive economist from Harvard, once called for the nationalization of these defense companies when they were far more numerous than they are now. They've merged into five or six giant companies like Lockheed Martin. And he said, let's get rid of the charade here. Most of their money comes from the Pentagon. They produce these weapons. They overcharge. They want more warfare because that means more money. Why don't we just nationalize them? Do you agree? Well, yeah, in a way, I mean, they've been, they should be nationalized and, <laughs> and severely shrunk. I mean, it's uh, the way you described or Galbraith described. I mean, they, they are a, a leech on society. I mean, I described, as you mentioned, I described the, the whole complex as, you know, as a sort of single cell organism that exists only to secure and expand its food supply so it gets bigger. And I, I said that because, notice, if you analyze the defense budgets and the way it's grown over the years, every time it shows a danger of shrinking and even just the rate of growth declining, by magic, another threat appears. Uh, you know, just as, and so then we're off to the races again. So it, it did, you know, I, I feel an organic analogy applies. Yeah, we could nationalize them. I mean, it wouldn't, to nationalize them implies they might be, you know, used for some social benefit, which I doubt would actually happen. You know, it wouldn't really do away with this compulsion to grow and feed off the rest of us that exists now. I think we need to do something more drastic. Well, one reason for given for nationalizing these companies is the drive for maximizing profit and sales is the drive to constantly expand unneeded, redundant weapon systems like the F-35, for example, or aircraft carriers that are sitting ducks for missiles that are only there to project force in the Far East or in the Middle East. But don't you agree that Congress has lost complete control. There used to be Senator Proxmire investigating. Oh, yeah. There used to be a, you know, a excess profits group that was abolished to return money to the taxpayer. And now it's completely taboo. The Democrats don't raise it in their campaigns. And of course, the Republicans want ever more. Have you ever seen it worse in terms of congressional accountability? They don't even provide an auditable budget to Congress. The Pentagon's been violating federal law since 1992 on that score. Well, no, you're quite right. It has never been worse. And by the way, the defense budget's never been higher either. 
you know, it's not just bad in terms of, you know, no one's, they don't sort of take it on. I mean, there are progressive sort of faction in, in the House, you know, did put in a resolution to, you know, to cut the defence budget. But they don't, you know, and that got a third of the House of Democrats, I think, that was about it. And that's as high as they're going to go. Because I think there's another problem. It's not just there's this sort of, you know, supine attitude to the military industrial complex. And now with, you know, war fever over Ukraine, that's made it worse than ever. But no one, they don't, no one really bothers to understand the defense system. And used to be, you'd have even people who like, supported the machine, you know, the idea of hawks, would be able to ask a question or two to, you know, would, would put these guys on the stand. Now, if you watch a hearing, no one, left or right, ever bothers to ask a decent question, which is out of ignorance, fear, and laziness, I think. So it's a very terrible state of affairs. Well, you've been up on Capitol Hill a lot. You've talked to a lot of members and staff. You remember the time when there used to be rather specific appropriation hearings for the military budget. And now they have this overseas contingency fund, which can be 50 to 100 billion a year that the Pentagon sends over with no hearings. It's just ratified right on the floor, virtually no debate. Yeah, that's right. They did finally trim that back, the overseas contingency operations, which was, I said, was like, you know, that was like extra, they're demanding extra to go to war. I mean, for the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq. And I said, it's like the police department demanding an extra sort of supplementary budget for catching criminals. <laughs> it, showed, it showed how really, you know, it showed up a very essential point that the defense, the Pentagon, the military industrial complex, it's not about defense really at all. It's about what you said. It's about maximizing profit and huge gobs of money for the interested parties. But it gets us into war. I think you, you quoted once Madeleine Albright, who told 60 Minutes that it was worth it when she was asked whether half a million Iraqi children dying during the sanctions on Saddam Hussein. Well, right. She said, yeah, it was worth it. Leslie Stahl asked that question. But she once said, we have all these weapons. You know, What good are they if we don't use them? Well, don't you think that the weapons and the military industrial complex actually are forces for war, for more bases, more provocation, more drones, more special forces, more invading unconstitutionally, illegally other lands. It's not just money. Well, I, I, I'm saying it is first and foremost about money. And actually, when you talk to the military, I mean, they do... I mean, war is nice, particularly for the defense contractors to show off their weapons. I mean, you get... They're quite happy with a permanent state of tension, I believe. So there's a need, they can justify the need to get ever more money to buy you know, ever more weapons. It's when you get idiots like Albright, who in the administration, in administrations, and like particularly the, this crew we've got now, I mean, my God, they make, you know, almost make Madeleine Albright look smart. You know, they're handed this machine and they think, you know, out of just sheer responsibility, they do want to use it. I don't think the professionals are so interested in, in using it. But certainly, you know, when you've got this unholy marriage of the professional, deeply self-interested and greedy military machine, military industrial complex, and the political agenda of people like Bill Clinton, for example. I mean, I've talked in my book, 
I talk a lot about how, you know, the expansion of NATO, how it happened. And there were two main impulses for that in the 90s. One was the deep desire of the military industrial complex, led by the Lockheed Martin Corporation, to jack up spending again after the Soviet Union had inconveniently disappeared. So they wanted to sort of, you know, to expand into Eastern Europe, create new markets, and actually provoke Russia, all of which they did very well. But the other thing that was really drove it was domestic politics, which I believe is what foreign policy is always about. And in this case, it was Bill Clinton, who was assured by Zbigniew Brzezinski that he would lose the Polish vote in Milwaukee, and this is literally, this literally happened, unless he said he was going to have Poland into NATO. So he went ahead, fine, who cares about breaking a promise to the Russians? Who cares about you know, laying the fuse for starting up a Cold War? Bill Clinton wanted to get re-elected. It wasn't even that vital. I mean, what Brzezinski was telling him was BS. He didn't need to win the Polish vote in Milwaukee, which he probably would have won anyway. It was just like a little extra, let's make this extra little gesture just, mm. just to sew up those few thousand votes. And that really set the trail for what this disaster we're in now with Ukraine. Well, before we get to that, we're talking with Andrew Coburn, the author of The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. I was once walking down the corridor in the House of Representatives complex, and there was an office reserved for Pentagon officials. In other mm -hmm. words, their lobbying is so intensive. It was once said they had somebody at the rank of major or higher assigned to each member of Congress. They actually had their own office there. And what they do is they tell all these members, even ones who have doubts about this trillion-dollar military budget, you know how many jobs are back home because of the F-35 or the F-16 or this tank or this ship? Yeah. They have it all broken down by congressional district. And it affects all of them, the most progressive people in Congress. Give the example of how it's affected Bernie Sanders. Yes. F-35. Exactly. Bernie Sanders, who, you know, if you stick him, pin into him, he'll tell you how much he hates the military industrial complex and how he votes against the defense budget and how he's, you know, against the F-35 even, this trillion plus useless fighter plane. But Bernie lobbied very hard and along with the rest of the very progressive Vermont Democratic Caucus, i.e. Patrick Leahy and the other senator, particularly Patrick Leahy, and Peter Welsh, the congressman, to get the Air Force to give the Vermont Air National Guard one of the first squadrons of F-35s, because it was supposedly going to generate jobs, which it didn't, by the way. I mean, they had an Air National Guard unit there already, which employed about 1,000 people. And so the, I think the F-35 actually employs slightly fewer, so it actually lost jobs. But they were so sort of mesmerized by this thing, you know, being dangled. Oh, you know, you're going to get jobs. You can tell the people that you've gotten jobs for the district. So Bernie Sanders, you know, it's disgusting because not only was he, you know, lobbying for this, you know, bring this new plane to be based in Burlington Airport, the capital main airport in Vermont, but it's, you know, what it's done is rendered the lives of the people around it poor people. You know, the people who live around Burlington Airport, they're low-income communities, and actually a lot of them are immigrants, 
And because the F-35 is four times as noisy as the F-16 it replaces, it's been rendered these people's lives absolute misery. Children are traumatized. Everyone who goes outside has to carry extra air protection in case these planes are taking off. So it just shows the evil sort of influence of the military industrial complex that they've gotten, you know, the leftist champion, Bernie Sanders, cave like a piece of wet cardboard, you know, once they sort of wiggle their finger and say, hey, we're going to get you a few jobs. And, you know, there he is. He'll, you know, he'll stoutly defend this disgusting. Yeah, not to mention the boondoggle of boondoggles is the F-35, about a $1.3 trillion operation. They keep cutting the numbers they're producing because the Lockheed Martin price to the taxpayer keeps going sky high. They twist Canada's arm to buy these F-35s, which Canada has no real purpose. And I think they backed off on that. They're trying to twist countries in Eastern Europe now and other places, of course, Saudi Arabia, buy an F-35. And what you say, there's a simple A-10 Warthog plane. It's been around for decades that performs one of the major functions of the F-35 much better, much cheaper. And by the way, the F-35 itself is full of deficiencies, defects, and doesn't fulfill its purposes. Why don't you give us a capsule on that? Oh, sure. I mean, the F-35, you know, it's been under development now for 20 years. It's years late. It's, you know, $1.3 trillion. As far as we can figure out, the actual price per copy of an F-35 now is around $130 million. But you don't want to buy one because they've admitted and the test reports, you know, bear this out, it doesn't work. It has six major deficiencies, which in the, cause, in the words of the official Pentagon testing report says could lead to loss of life or serious injury. I would kill the pilot. And something upwards of around 800 other deficiencies. I mean, it basically, it's a useless piece of junk. Isn't it really up to three, 400 million now in the cost overruns per oh, plane? Well, Oh, well, yeah, if you add everything else in, I mean, the whole total cost, development costs, yeah, you could say up to 400 million. They bury, their, they're like they've conned the Finns and the Swiss and the Germans have just signed up for it. And they give them like, that 130 million was the price they're charging then. But they're going to find out there's going to be a lot of add-ons for that. But the other part, you know, as you mentioned, that one of the missions it's replacing or taking over is close support. I mean, the the only really important function an Air Force actually has, which doesn't make any real difference to, the, to a war, is supporting troops on the ground. And as you say, we've had for years a very capable plane, which A, does the job very well. It was designed, the A-10, because it was designed so that the pilot could really see with his own two eyes what's going on on the ground, as opposed to having to rely on you know, all sorts of electronic doodars and radars and infrareds and all the rest. You can actually see it. So naturally enough, the Air Force has hated this plane ever since it entered service because it's cheap and because it isn't, you know, something that can go and drop nuclear bombs far behind the lines, which is what they really like. So they've been doing their best to kill the one plane, one of the very few planes that actually can perform its assigned mission in favor of this piece of junk. And, you know, we don't have Admiral Rickover anymore. I mean, Rickover, who's called the father of the nuclear Navy, mm -hmm. when he 
had his final testimony before the Joint Economic Committee after he's been fired by Reagan, 60-some years in the Navy. He said he, he wished he could sink every nuclear sub. He actually said that. And then he went into a, a real diatribe against the vast expense, way over contracts by these weapon systems. And he always said the U.S. government should have its own Navy yard, its own factories, so they can be a yardstick for that. Did you ever meet Rickover? What do you think of Rickover? There's no person like him anymore. He would go up and beat up on the military industrial complex, and he would challenge a lot of the taboos. Right. I mean, no, I never met him, unfortunately, but he's certainly one of my heroes. I would say I would support his view of having, you know, a government shipyard and government plants if Rico was running them. I mean, because, you know, he really did carry out his mission. I, one of my favorite sayings of his is, or thoughts of his, is that he said you should go to the Pentagon and you tell everyone to go outside and form two circles, an inner circle and an outer circle, and then you fire the outer circle. He just, you know, he was really thought the whole place was overrun with irrelevant bureaucrats. And, you know, he had no compunction about telling, you know, calling out the contractors as well. No, he's a sad loss. And there is no one like that. And no one, not only is there, is there no one like that, but the, I feel there's no possibility of there anyone like that because the system is now geared to, you know, spitting out anyone who shows a sign of independence. I mean... It used to be they'd say the smartest people in the Pentagon were the colonels who never made general. Then it became the majors who never made colonel. Now you find the odd smart captain, but they'll be spit out soon too because you know the system doesn't really tolerate anyone who's prepared to you know to call it out, to call a spade a spade, or talk about what's going on. So let's say the U.S. was a dictatorship formally, you know, let's say mm -hmm. there was a coup d'etat and some dictator took over. Would the military industrial complex have more leeway than it has now? It seems to be completely invulnerable. Taxpayers can't sue because they don't have standing to sue. So they're out. The Congress is in their pocket. They're out. The media, which I want you to talk about covering the Pentagon, is really a farce. If we had a formal dictatorship... Would the people have any less impact on the sub-government called the military-industrial complex, a phrase coined by President Eisenhower in his farewell speech, formerly five-star general, he knew what he was talking about. Would they have any less, any less influence than they have now? No, they wouldn't. They, you know, they, they might have even more, since the dictator would really want to make sure he had, he or she would you know, had their support in maintaining their power, but there certainly wouldn't be less of any, any kind of dictator we're likely to have. I mean, if we had a peace dictator who wanted to cut back their power, they'd quickly overthrow it. Tell our people the over-armament here. I mean, they're just piling up bombs, weapons, destroyers, aircraft carriers, missiles. As Seymour Melman once said, the industrial engineering professor at Columbia University, he once equated them with TNT so they could blow up the world 300 times. Give our listeners an idea of how many Trident submarines there are, and with their multiple warheads, how many cities could one Trident submarine destroy uh, in a matter of hours around the world? Somewhere around about 50, I believe. 
I mean, sorry, I hadn't, hadn't actually bothered to do that calculation later, but it'd be, be about 50. And, you know, we've got, we've got 12 of them. So we could really destroy most of the planet in a matter of, matter of minutes, not a problem. And then, of course, we've got the ICBMs. But I, I really want to emphasize something, Ralph, to make my point. I mean, these, you know, as you say, and we're just saying with the nuclear weapons, you know, they can, they've made it possible, given themselves the power to destroy the planet and the human race and everything else, too. But, you know, what is the aim is clearly to me not conquering territory. They, they don't mind doing that. If, but the end, the objective is more money. I'll give you an example. The most the Navy has a whole string of completely, you know, useless initiatives of vast expense. The most obvious one is the, well, one of the most obvious ones is the Zumwalt class destroyer, which was this three billion a copy ship, which was designed to be stealthy, invisible on radar, whether it is or not is open to doubt. But its weapon, it was going to have this magic giant cannon that could fire a shell. 70 miles and you know be you know be tough you know change its course in flight that was this wonder weapon this ship was going to carry then they discovered that each shell each piece of ammunition that this ship would this cannon would fire would cost just under a million dollars and even with the defense budget we have today they couldn't really afford to stock up <laughs> have rounds of ammunition costing a million dollars each even think so they canceled it which means that this ship has no weapon. I mean, has no has a few defensive weapons, but you know it can't you know do damage to the enemy. So you'd think they'd just sort of, you know quietly take it off into some area of deep water and sink it, or send it to the museum, or cut it up for spare parts or something. No, Raytheon Corporation has just secured a one point six billion dollar contract to overhaul and sort of tinker with the three Zomwalt class destroyers, which can't do any damage to the enemy, you know, that we have. You know, it's a perfect example of how this whole, how corrupt the whole system is. I mean, if it was well, just you know, about invading you... the world, fair, well, not fair enough, but that would be one thing. But I mean, it's, it's not about that. It's about profit. Well, your book has a lot of information about accidental launches of nuclear weapons between the Russians and the U.S., and it also has good history in it. You know, we talk a lot about North Korea and the dictatorship there, and he's launching missiles, and we forget what happened in the Korean War when the North Koreans invaded South Korea, and then we went to help South Korea. We abandoned all the rules of warfare all the rules of warfare, and the North Koreans don't forget this. And in your book on page 10, you have this statement, heavy bombers soon succeeded in incinerating every city, town, and village in North Korea with little effect on the course of the war, which was once again decided by armies fighting it out on the ground, end quote. There never was any real public education in the U.S. about what we did to the civilians in North Korea. It's arguably the most complete devastation of civilian infrastructure, homes, buildings, health care facilities that the U.S. has ever carried out. And that's saying something, given Iraq, yeah. Afghanistan, Vietnam. 
But let's get to a good part of your book is encapsulated in the warnings of a man who really knew what he was talking about, Bruce Blair. Tell us about him and tell us about Lee Butler. Okay, yeah, two very, very important, interesting people, great, great Americans. Bruce Blair, who was a good friend of mine, he started life, he was a launch control officer in a, he was an Air Force officer, he was, and he had this job, he was a launch control officer in a silo underneath Montana. And he controlled, you know, launching, he was meant to be there when the order came through, you know, to, to launch the missiles, he and another guy in the silo would launch the missiles. He figured out that it was actually entirely possible, entirely possible for him to override the so-called safety system and launch the missiles himself. Furthermore, he figured out that if he got control, if he was able to suborn or you know, recruit the crew of a, another silo, a particular command silo, which was also not too far away under Montana, they could launch the entire U.S. nuclear arsenal, except for the bombers. They could, you know, the missiles, the ground missiles, the submarines, they could basically blow up the planet. And the, you know, the safeguards against this were very, you know, slipshod and, you know, very ineffective because he, sitting there underground, day hour after hour, day after day, he figured out how to get around them. When he got out, he was so alarmed by this, he went to the Congress and said, look, you know, there's a situation. Here's why the system, the safety system is full of faults. And the Congress then demanded that the Air Force do a report on this, which the Air Force did, and refused to give it to the Congress. <laughs> so, you know, Bruce spent the rest of his life trying to explain to people how incredibly dangerous the situation is, because they don't really care about safety you know, I don't, doesn't bring in enough money or whatever, how accidental nuclear war is entirely possible. One of the, so you mentioned that's Bruce, and he was very effective. I mean, he certainly influenced a lot of people. One of the people who he, you know, found common ground with was Lee Butler, who in a way is a more extraordinary character, because Lee Butler was a, still alive, was a professional army Air Force officer, very successful, very, you know, highly thought of, kept getting promoted until he was eventually made commander of STRATCOM, or first of all, the Strategic Air Command, which then changed into STRATCOM, which has control of all the US nuclear arsenal. And Butler, having seen you know, the real target lists and the real plans for nuclear war, concluded this was completely heinous and madness and that nuclear weapons had to be abolished. That, you know, the whole, he ridiculed the whole idea of deterrence. He said, you know, we've got to get away from this. We've got to abolish nuclear weapons. And unfortunately, he's now quite sick. And so he doesn't do it anymore. But he campaigned quite hard for a number of years for saying, you know, with the credentials of not just some sort of someone like you or me, well, even you, but, you know, someone who'd come from inside the system who'd seen, who knew the system as well as anyone could. And of course, got nowhere. I mean, you know, influenced a lot of people, but the system itself paid no attention. As I talk a lot about in the book, Barack Obama in 2010 authorized a wholesale, they, 
they called it an upgrade, a modernization, actually a re the rebuilding of an entirely new nuclear arsenal. We're getting a new missile, new bomber, new sub missile, new warheads, you know, new bombs. It's going to, you know, cost who knows what it'll cost. I'm reckoning on, they say just over a trillion. I think that really translates into two trillion. And it's you know, incredibly dangerous. And, you know, thank God we had Blair and Butler. What worries me is I don't see any new Blairs and Butlers with that level of information that they carried with them. We've had our warnings. You quote General Douglas MacArthur as far back as 1957. He's not known as a peacenik. And here's what he said. Always, there has been some terrible evil at home or some monstrous foreign power that was going to gobble us up if we did not blindly rally behind it by furnishing the exorbitant sums demanded. Yet in retrospect, these disasters never seem to have happened, never seem to have been quite real, end quote. That's Douglas MacArthur, in effect, echoing a lot of what President Dwight Eisenhower has said. But we don't have presidents like that anymore. They don't talk like that anymore. This is why this Ukraine war with Russian invasion is so dangerous, don't you think? Because, as the New York Times pointed out, that Biden is going to get more aggressive with Russia. He's going to have more of a confrontation. No soldiers yet. No fly zone. But he wants to make sure that he dismantles the ability of Russia to have a war machine that they have now. Now, <laughs> that kind of talk drives a humiliated Putin into very dangerous territory because he's got his finger on more nuclear missiles that exist in Russia than exist in the U.S. And this accidental loss then comes into view because the Russian system is based on ground-based radar to detect what they think is coming at them our system can detect anywhere in the world the release of ballistic missile. Yep. And so they can get the wrong signal and then launch. And you've written a lot about that in your book. Why don't you educate our listening audience about all this in the context of the Ukraine war? Well, yes. I mean, the, the Russians, you know, their early warning system is, you know, not up to the level of ours at all. As you just said, they rely on ground-based radars. With the fall of the Soviet Union, their whole warning system fell apart. They had no money, no satellites. You know, Putin's been slowly trying to rebuild it, but still, exactly. I mean, I'm glad you raised this because, you know, it really speaks to the irresponsibility, the sort of criminal irresponsibility of, of this administration, who are being letting themselves being pushed by this wave of hysteria that they themselves have helped generate over Ukraine by the press, by the Congress, you know, particularly by the Democrats in Congress. Initially, they said, well, when Putin sort of talk, started talking about nuclear weapons, they paid attention and, you know, that was influencing their behavior or a certain amount of restraint. Now they've concluded that, ah, he's just bluffing. He'll never use them. So we don't need to, don't need to worry about that. And we can push forward. So, you know, the possibility of, you know, as our now stated official objective is to weaken Russia, not about, you know, just saving Ukraine or saving the Zelensky regime in Ukraine, but to weaken Russia. I mean, basically, we have declared war on Russia. We've already declared economic war, and now we're declaring really military war. 
I mean, what else do they mean by weaken Russia in the context of military action? So within that, you know, now they've created that environment. So Putin, you know, as you say, Putin could see a missile coming. Remember in 1994, the Norwegians launched a weather rocket to check the weather in the upper atmosphere. The Russian early warning system thought, labeled this an American attack. This is at a time when Russia was more or less in our pocket. The old drunk Yeltsin was our, was our friend. There was no, no tension between the countries. And yet, at that point, the Russians went on alert. So imagine now, in this state of affairs, in this current atmosphere, when we're already, really, as I just said, at war, if the Russians perceive something they think could be Amer an American you know, nuclear attack, an American missile or more than one missile launched at them, how they're going to react. I mean, their doctrine says one, you know, one nuclear attack on us and that's it. We launch everything. So I think, you know, the situation is hair-raisingly dangerous at the moment. And, you know, certainly no desire to let Vladimir Putin off the hook with his invasion of Ukraine. But I think the slippery slope we're on with regards to this administration is getting steeper all the time. They, you know, initially okay. they said, we're not going to intervene. Then, not, then it's been no fly zone. We're edging closer and closer to full out involvement in a war. The signs are not good. Two specifics on this, Andrew. About a month ago, it was reported that the Russian generals were not returning the calls to the U.S. generals. They have this hotline where they're constantly in touch with right. each other. That's a bad sign. Number two, about a month or so into the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, a war crime, Russians and Ukrainians met in Turkey to start negotiations. And they were on the verge of an agreement that, one, Ukraine would be neutral, no NATO membership. Two, Russia would have certain security guarantees. And three, that there would be constant negotiations. It wouldn't just wrap up. Well, it did wrap up and nothing ever happened. That's because the U.S. was not waging peace. They were not really pushing for negotiations. It's like they want to teach Russia a lesson apart from the Ukraine war, but using the Ukraine war as an excuse. And so the Russians see all these neighboring countries have been signed up to be members of NATO under Clinton and other administrations. Missiles 100 miles away from the Russian border. You know, you got a paranoid regime to begin with in Moscow. This feeds that paranoid. So we're not waging peace. And what do you see coming up here? I mean, what's the exit strategy for Putin? What's the exit strategy for the U.S.? What's the exit strategy for Zelensky and the Ukrainians? Well, I mean... If you take it apart, I mean, the question, would Zelensky, supposing Zelensky, who presumably cares about seeing his country destroyed, if he wanted to make an agreement tomorrow with Putin, would he be allowed to? I mean, it doesn't get much comment here, but two members of the Ukrainian negotiating team, I think two, certainly one, have been executed by the Ukrainian intelligence service because they were thought to be too dovish in their negotiating with the Russians when they were possibly labeled as Russian spies, but it seems to be that they were thought to be insufficiently hawkish. You know, they were like prepared to negotiate. So that's what, you know, people ought to remember that. 
would the US allow Zelensky to make a deal? I don't think so, because you know, now we're committed to weakening Russia. If he makes a deal, then you know, the main objective won't have been achieved. Russia will have had some sort of a success that Putin would claim. Putin, in a way, is gaining something already out of this, as I've written in my substack, because you know, his political position in Russia depends on being the champion of, you know, the defender of Russia, and that Russia's under threat. And therefore, you've got to have a strong man, i.e. Vladimir Putin, in charge. So the more Russia is threatened, you can say it's threatened, in a way, the better politically for him. I noticed this when Finland and Sweden were getting together to talk about joining NATO, when you'd think if he didn't want them to join NATO, he'd say, oh, we love Finland and Sweden, and we have no desire to go anywhere near them. Instead, he moved, immediately moved military forces even nuclear weapons sort of on, on alert close to the border. I took that as him giving them an encouraging shove because, you know, more countries joining NATO in a way politically is the better for Putin. Of course, it's also highly dangerous for all the reasons we've been discussing. The other thing, Andrew, we've pointed out in this program is the <coughs> Russians have a long memory of losing 50 million Russians in two world wars where the Germans went into Russia from the Western frontier, I said, what if we had this situation here with Canada, we would not be so restrained. So we don't have good leadership in Washington here. We don't have savvy diplomatic peace negotiating leadership. We're pouring a lot of defensive weapons into Ukraine and showing that we're going to continue to provoke Putin and we know a lot about where Putin's coming from, and you don't provoke somebody like that and turn them into a giant North Korea. Oh, we're going to strip him of the basis right. for his military machine. After all, you know, our military is reliant on some very rare metals that largely come from Russia. That's right. And our computer industry relies on that. And our automotive industry now with electric cars relies on that. So this escalation is not good. And we're running out of time, but I want to ask two personal questions. One is, you've been digging all this material up. You have parts in your book that are really fascinating about this inspector general in Afghanistan and what he's come up with and all kinds of corruption and waste. And one area of the military-industrial empire complex after another is in this book, listeners, called The Spoils of War by Andrew Coburn, C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N. There's one vulnerability that great reporters like you have. I call it the satiety of exposés. That is, you expose so much compared to other reporters that you feel so satisfied in what you're doing compared to other reporters that you don't become an advocate, an advocate trying to push for congressional hearings, wanting to even testify the way some authors have of muckraking books. You don't move it into action. I'm saying you, you know, collectively. The satiety of exposés. Reflect a bit about that. Well, you mean I should, rather than sort of sitting back with a smug smile once I've published something, I should, I should actually be heading down to Capitol Hill to take further action to, to move uh, in other words to move from journalism into action how can you resist it given what you know i know you're asking a lot especially when i do do you know I, i'm part of various groups i do talk a lot to congressional aides i do i mean i i'm sure i 
might fail various uh, sort of conflict of interest tests by, you know, rather than just exposing, I do sort of urge people to do things. Maybe I should do more. Anyway, I'll take your urgings to heart, Ralph. You speak with great credibility. Very few people have reached a depth of understanding of this empire and this military industrial complex. I mean, when I did the, the book on unsafe at any speed, I was so outraged that I didn't care whether people said you're no longer a journalist. I, I wanted to regulate GM. I wanted to get safer cars. And I, I'm not boasting. I'm just saying emotionally, how do you put the brakes on what you know and the sense of urgency that you've wrapped around it? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll do I, I quite agree. I mean, it's you can't sit back and just let all this go on. I don't know. I, I, I do what I can. Maybe I should try harder. Well, Steve, what about you must be looking for a comment or a question? Yeah, I wanted, Andrew, to ask you every time I turn on CNN in the last few weeks with regards to the Ukraine war, I just see generals talking or national security, retired national security figures, James Clapper, retired generals. Talk a little bit about the role of that particular revolving door from general to lucrative pundit jobs. Well, most of them, in fact, these old hacks who get trotted out, the, you know, Petraeus, Wesley Clark, Panetta, former Secretary of Defense, you know, they put them on, they say, here's, now we turn for an informed view of the world to General Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense. What they don't say is he's he's a lobbyist. He works for a defense contractor, as they all do. I mean, it's absolutely shameless that the media puts these people on like, you know, just there for their expertise. And they're all shilling for, you know, for the military industrial complex directly. It's just, you know, just like, well, you know, we got our present Secretary of Defense. Lloyd Austin was a, made a lot of money out of Raytheon. I mean, it, it's so squalid, the whole thing. And, you know, you don't see any any dissident, I mean, uh, any dissident voices. In fact, I made a joke on my Substack the other day. I said if Dwight Eisenhower were to make his military industrial complex speech today, he'd be kicked off Twitter, you know, probably as, you know, accused of being a, you know, Russian-supported, Russian sympathizer or something. I mean, the suffocation of debate is so much worse than ever was. It was bad enough with the invasion of Iraq, where, you know, dissident voices didn't get on, but this is like 10 times worse. You also described the slaughter in Yemen by the Saudis backed up by U.S. military arms and political cover. This book will get you motivated, listeners, because the trajectory of this empire will devour our country. It's already starving trillions of dollars over the years that could have rebuilt and modernized upgraded all the public facilities, schools, public transit, drinking water systems, land erosion recovery, not only highways and bridges. We're paying a real price here. And I think it's about time we listen to some of our returning veterans who belong to groups like Veterans for Peace or just returning veterans who are now free to talk. They'll tell you something about the glory of war in a very satiric, bitter manner and the hundreds of thousands of veterans who did survive these wars, not to mention the millions of natives who died, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, you name it. But they were scarred for life. 
not only the burn pits contamination that Biden properly paid attention to, finally, but they were scarred, traumatized for life, moral trauma as to what they did to innocent people under orders from the top brass, as well as physical trauma. So, Anna, do you have a comment or question before we leave? I do. Thank you, Mr. Coburn. I wanted to build on Ralph's question on the point of taking action. I think the story you tell in your book presents kind of the soft underbelly of the military industrial complex, which is, you know, the human egos involved and the human greed involved. So I'm curious if you see an opportunity to kind of pick away at the military industrial complex through that personal motivation. Yeah, I think it is. I think it should be, you know, more and more we should highlight these, you know, you know, who these particular people are, how, what they're like. And I was just talking about, you know, these, you know, the plaques that are going, you know, put on TV all the time now, what their, uh, you know, what their actual interests are, which is, you know, they're doing it for the, do- for the, for the dollar. But beyond that, not just the personal thing, I think it's important for, you know, the progressives, uh, people who take the attitude, you know, being expressed by everyone in this discussion, today you know is to is to really learn about defense you know it's you know to point out the thing i keep you know i hope i'm not boring everyone saying you know the thing defense should be in quotation marks they're not that interested and then you know unless you know the u.s is facing imminent defeat in a war they never get that interested i mean you know the examples i give an example in the book of the soldiers in korea who were all getting frostbite who are raiding enemy trenches to steal boots because the enemy in Korea had much better boots, whereas the Americans were all getting frostbite because they couldn't be, the high command hadn't bothered to give them decent boots. You know, most recent wars, you had working class families going into debt to supply their sons, daughters, brothers, husbands, whatever, with essential pieces of equipment, you know, body armor and night vision goggles because again the military couldn't be bothered to give them that because they were spending the money on very much more profitable toys so you know we really that is the soft i mean i I, maybe i'm repeating myself but i think people should pay much more attention to the soft underbelly not just to say which we should say you know it's all bad and we shouldn't be pissing away all, all our national treasure on this on the military industrial complex, but to point out that it has feet of clay, legs of clay, you know, old bodies of clay, because people have to understand that. People have to understand they're being had, you know, what the whole game is about. And then we might get some sanity back into discussion. One thing you point out in your book is no one's held accountable. The war criminals retire and they get big speeches and book advances and are given awards like Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice and George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz. And in your chapter on the corruption in Afghanistan with the inspector general who you interviewed, John Sopko, he told you that all these criminal exposés that he has documented, not one person was fired. He said not only was not one person fired, he said no one missed a promotion. He said he doesn't think anyone even missed a bonus pissing away uh, god knows how much certainly a hundred billion dollars of our money 
Well, we've been speaking with Andrew Coburn, the author of the new book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, one of many books that he's written. Clearly the premier investigative reporter of the military-industrial complex and the empire that it spawns without limit. Tell us how people can access your substack, and then we'll let you go. Okay, and my substack is Spoils of War, all one word dot substack dot com it's pretty easy thank you very much andrew coburn thank you ralph it's a pleasure and honor to be on with you we've been speaking with andrew coburn we will link to his book spoils of war at ralph com. up next ralph is going to answer some of your listener questions but first let's check in with our corporate crime reporter russell mokyber from the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Tuesday, May 3, 2022. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Johnson & Johnson is seeking to execute a corporate bankruptcy shell game known as the Texas Two-Step to avoid facing claims from cancer-stricken customers. The Texas Two-Step is the name given to a highly controversial legal strategy that some of the biggest companies are now using to shield their assets from accountability. It allows massively wealthy corporations whose products cause harm to avoid paying damages to the victims of that harm, and it denies the victims their right to make their case in court and be judged by a jury of their peers. There's a justice system for rich people and powerful corporations, and there's a system for everyone else, said Senator Dick Durbin, who has introduced legislation to outlaw the practice. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with Hannah Feldman and Ralph. Let's do some listener questions. Ralph, this is from a listener who gives us just his last name, I assume, Nicholson. He wants to know, so what's the story with New York's unelected governor using her power to extort the Seminole Nation out of $600 million plus for a fracking billionaire's trophy stadium project in Buffalo? Your perspective, he's talking about the publicly financed new football stadium in Buffalo for the Bills. Well, we received a number of questions on that, including from Roger Hogue. It's all you say about it. It was negotiated with the Pagula family in Buffalo, which owns the Buffalo Bills and is worth $5.8 billion, with a B, according to Forbes, that they want the taxpayer to pay for the new stadium, which would nominally be owned by Erie County, but rented for a song by the Buffalo Bills, who control all the concessions, the parking fees, and the naming rights. And Governor Hochul negotiated this in secret, sprung it on the state legislature, saying the Buffalo Bills will move somewhere to Austin, Texas, or elsewhere if they don't subsidize it. And it was part of the overall annual New York state budget, and she signed it into law. And I sent her an an email saying, if you think it's over, you're mistaken, Governor, because there's going to be a lot of conflict when the details are known and when the extortion is elaborated, like we're going to move if you don't give us $1.3 billion package, $800 million from the taxpayer. And they used a settlement with the Native American tribe there to put the money in that kitty. And the Native American leaders are very upset and criticized her publicly. So it's going to be continuously contentious. I suggested that they name the new stadium, if it's built, Taxpayer Stadium. That's what they should name it, Taxpayer Stadium. <laughs> yeah, because they paid for the naming rights. It might as well be. 
that's the other thing. It'll probably get some, they'll make a lot of money having some corporations slap their name on it and the taxpayers won't get any of that back. But, you know. That's for sure. And the idea of creating jobs has been denounced by dozens of economists who specialize in sports economics. You know, they're going to have 10 games a year, two exhibition, eight regular games. What kind of jobs are going to be created compared to that kind of money being put into neighborhood recreation facilities so people and young people and people of all ages can get exercise and develop a sense of community throughout the greater Buffalo area? That would create not only better jobs, but more health as well. I want to thank our guest again, Andrew Coburn. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material. We call the wrap-up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, the pilot issue is only $5 to cover shipping, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wentz. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. And everybody needs to pay attention to what Andrew Coburn is writing about. There really is no alternative other than the people taking charge again. Say you try to trying. You say we have no choice. Say you're just one person. And who will hear your voice? Don't let them fool you. You have the power in your hand. I'm only trying to school you.